Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Evan Novi williams and this is the Get Your Bids In Now sports business podcast, The Sportacast. You know what? You know what I'm sensing from you, Evan. I'm sensing five days on the road fatigue. Oh, That's man. what I'm sensing from you. You're, you're I, I, the, I mean, yeah, I don't know if you can hear it. Let's in my go voice. a little Steve Summers. Yeah, Steve Summers used to say, "You there, me? You know, me here, you there on the other side of the glass." I am coming back home. I'm here. I'm 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 in the New York area. You still in Austin, Texas, checking out all the South by Southwest. Uh, and you had something funny about the Metaverse panel, by the way. This I enjoyed. Tell everybody what happened to the Metaverse panel. Yeah, I sat in on, I'm sure there's a, a billion Metaverse panels yeah. here, but one of the big ones in one of the big conference rooms. And uh, th- there's people watching from all over the world, obviously. And there's people in the room itself. And, and they go to take questions at the end. And there were questions from online. And there were about a bunch of people in the room queuing up to ask questions at a microphone. And they made a point to prioritize. They're like, oh, I want to make sure we get to everyone in the room because they're here physically. And I thought that was so funny, Scott, the, the irony of talking about the, 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 this, this, this future internet world in which your physical location is irrelevant. And yet when it came time to take questions, they clearly wanted to prioritize the people. They, they placed a bigger value on the people who were there in person. I thought that was kind of a perfect little encapsulation. Uh, and, and I was looking around to see if anyone was catching the irony and I didn't, uh, no one in my immediate vicinity seemed to think it was as funny as I was. Well, I think that's why this, this podcast and, and I'll, and I'm going to, you know, put, pat ourselves on the back here. I think why this podcast works, because had I been in the room, even across the room from you, I would have probably, you know, sneaked a glance at you and furrowed my brow. You would have done the same. And we'd have been like, yeah, shouldn't they have gone to the remote or the, you know, this whole thing should have been done in the metaverse. So far, right. yeah. Yes, well, bids do, you opened up with that. Yes, not just any old franchise here. I mean, this story has everything. This could be the movie of the week. This could be the documentary. The sale of Chelsea, Roman Abramovich getting close to bids being due on Friday. Uh, we, we've seen some big names. Uh, we have heard that there's unprecedented interest from six out of seven continents, sorry, as of the last time I checked, nobody in Antarctica had pony up a bid for this EPL team. But we do know that Tom Ricketts, of course, owner of the Cubs, partnering with Ken Griffin uh, on a bid. And we're, we're hearing so many big names and so many others that we have not heard. But what's your takeaway? What's your lesson learned from what we've heard so far on Chelsea? Yeah, I think the the one thing, and I want to get your thoughts on this, I'm fascinated by how quickly this process is moving. We've talked on this show a lot comparing the Chelsea sale to the Broncos sale. The market has known for a very long time that that Chelsea that that, that the Broncos were going to be sold. They are just Chelsea officially or the Broncos officially hit the market way before Chelsea did. The the process for the Broncos is just letting people into the data room to see the kind of the financials of the team. Chelsea has been on the market for two weeks. We're already at the stage where initial bids are due at the end of this week, Scott. Just the speed of this process, I find totally fascinating. And I guess my question for you is, is why it seems like this Broncos sale could take seven months, could take eight months, who knows? Why is it that a, a team that's that's priced a little bit more, that's going to have a, a wider array of, of bidders that you probably need to vet, why is it that this process can maybe take a month and the other one is going to take eight months? Yeah, well, you could theoretically... If the bankers on any sale say, or for whatever reason, that they want an expedited process, you can certainly do it. But if there's no need to rush, and here when I talked about movie of the week and documentary, 
I mean, you've got war, you've got billionaires, you've got sanctions, you've got seizures of, of assets, you've got freezing of assets. And I'm not even sure yet, do we know where the proceeds of this sale will go? Because when the preferred bidder is discovered, and maybe that'll happen Friday, you know, or maybe they'll say, hey, give us another round of bids. But whenever that preferred bidder is picked, then there will be a special license granted by the UK government for that person to go and sell or buy the team. And then we're still like, all right, well, who then gets the proceeds? I think you and I would both be shocked if Roman Abramovich winds up getting the proceeds of the sale. So does it go to the government? There's still so many unanswered questions, but sort of all the backdrop that we just talked about uh, is probably why we are looking at an expedited process. And certainly it doesn't hurt. We are seeing some big name folks in global sport getting together both business and sport, Wall Street and sport on the global scale, that money won't be the problem. You know, this, this isn't going to be like, oh, let us see if we can find 20 LPs to go and get this done. And the reason or, or, or the fact that we don't know where the money goes, I think also makes this this sale super interesting about picking, right? The, the highest bidder doesn't always get a team, but price is always a, a massive factor. We now have a situation where there's a chance if Roman is not going to profit from this at all, price to him kind of irrelevant, right? He can kind of divorce himself from looking at the numbers really. And who knows how he wants to pick it. It could be a friend of his, someone he likes, someone he thinks is going to steward Chelsea better. Well, uh, again, you're, you're forward. assuming that he'll have even that much control. I'm not sure he has even that much control. This could just sure. be, all right, sit it out that we're selling this asset, you know, almost, almost in like a forfeiture. You know, we're, we're just, we've taken it and we'll sell it and we'll recoup whatever it is. Yeah. And, and, and if his, his interest as it seems like it is, is to, is to, to sell this team to somebody who he thinks puts Chelsea in a good position to continue to be dominant on the global soccer uh, landscape, maybe he should sell it for a dollar and let the bidders save the, the three billion they were going to and, and put it into funding losses for the next 30 years for the team. I, I just find it so fascinating that uh, in, in a world in which it's not, again, it's not always the biggest thing, but price is always sometimes the most important factor in these sales. We have potentially set up a situation here where one of the most valuable sports teams in the globe is going to sell to someone for whom price is kind of irrelevant. And I think that's, I think that's an awesome little additional fold to all this. Yeah, and, and in all this, adding to the intrigue is the fact that, of course, you're probably going to need a new stadium at Stamford Bridge, and whether that's a billion, a billion and a half, two billion dollars, whatever that may be, uh, you coming at a time where, of course, the media rights are so important, where we saw a diminution in the in the domestic rights of the EPL, but obviously soccer, the most popular sport in the world, plenty of upside in the global game. I've had some bankers tell me the, of this question. Which franchise will be worth more 10 years from now? Will it be the Broncos? Will it be Chelsea? I've had some bankers say Chelsea. I've had some say the Broncos. We put that at one of our South by panels. We put that same question to John Skipper and uh, John Weinbach of Skydance Sports. And they too came with a different angle, I believe. Didn't Skipper say he thought the Broncos would be worth more uh, five years from now? I wasn't in the session at that point. You weren't in the session. Where were you, young man? Not in the session. That's a good question. I don't remember. <laughs> Again, one team, and this is also like the, the, what makes it so interesting. Broncos making $100 million a year. Chelsea losing between $150 and $200 million a year, largely on expenditures for players, You know your, your, large, your largest cost. And if you're Chelsea and you want, want to remain one of the elite clubs of the world, you can't just all of a sudden say, 
we're not going to spend that much. Like we're altering our philosophy completely and we're not going to be one of the bigger spenders on players because, you know, then all of a sudden maybe you dip out of Champions League and you lose on that revenue. And it's all predicated on winning, right? The, these big global clubs, whether it's PSG or Arsenal, it, it's, it's our Liverpool, it's all predicated on being sort of top of the table, right? You got to win if you want to be in that group. And moving on then, Scott, from top of the uh, most valuable clubs in Europe to the most valuable baseball teams in the U.S., uh, some news that we broke uh, at Sportico this week, Arctos Partners, we've talked about them a lot, private equity firm that is buying up stakes in a lot of sports franchises, a lot of sports adjacent businesses. We got a little peek into their MLB portfolio, Scott, and it is some of the most valuable clubs in baseball. It includes the Dodgers, it includes the Red Sox, it includes the Cubs, the Giants, the Padres, and the Astros are still in there. Uh, a really interesting look. We, we've seen in other sports, a lot of the private equity deals are happening for clubs that are maybe in the bottom end of uh, of the valuations table. In baseball, at least, it looks like Arctos is targeting the opposite. They're targeting the cream of the crop. Well, it sort of seemed their investment thesis is sort of the iconic franchises. They're bringing great brands together. Interestingly enough, the only... Um, the only piece of this that had been disclosed prior to our story was their investment in Fenway Sports Group. And of course, part and parcel on that means the Boston Red Sox. But when you are saying brands like Dodgers, Cubs, Giants, so if you, you, they have the Golden State Warriors in the NBA. They, they started with one, uh, one investment and then they took more in the Warriors. Unlike the other sports, baseball does not cap the number of teams that these firms can invest in. So if they're looking out across the array of MLB teams, uh, they've certainly got some cream of the crop. And now I'm just reading tea leaves here, Mr. Novi Williams, and I think you're going to agree with me. Never forget the quote about the New York Yankees. Like there's nothing more limiting than being a limited partner to George Steinbrenner. Now, of course, it's not George Steinbrenner, the owner anymore. It's Hal Steinbrenner and the Steinbrenner family. But they do have some LP stakes, and we know some of those stakes have been for sale for some time, but because of the overall valuation of the club and the fact that you have very little say in governance, it's really hard to trade those pieces. And I would be, what's the, beyond shocked, I would be, what, gobsmacked if any of these private equity firms ever took a piece of the New York Yankees. I think that's right. And the Yankees are the only only team in the top five of baseball valuations that Arctos is not an investor in. At this point, Scott, let's go back real quick to, to what you were mentioning about how baseball is the only league that doesn't have a cap on how many of these the, these teams uh, that can sell, that, that, how many of these uh, teams can be owned by a single private equity firm. Uh, it's five teams in the NBA. I believe it's five in the NHL. It's four in MLS. Uh, so this is a really different approach. Can you think of some reasons why you, you might not want a situation in which a single fund, a single firm has equity in 25 of, of 30 teams. It seems like there are potential conflicts of interest that could arise that other leagues clearly want to avoid getting themselves in a situation with that Major League Baseball obviously uh, is not concerned about. Yeah, well, first off, what if something happens to the fund? You know, what if something happens there? You know, if what, and, and I'll use the word kaput. What if a fund goes kaput? You don't want it, you know, across that wide a spectrum. Sure, but these are passive stakes, right? Like they have no say. You're really just sort of along for the ride. And I wonder what the exit strategy is. Who are the buyers? Do you create another fund to, to then take out the first and then bring in new people for the second? You know, uh, I'm assuming that's how it is. But all right, I'm going to order up a story. Like, I, I think we just came up with a good idea. We need to, what is, what is the, we know the runway 
like when you're taking off, what's the runway for the landing here? What's the land? What's a successful exit? Who's on the other side? Who do you pitch? What's the play? And then what do you do with it? it it's a great I just question. asked a whole lot of questions, but I don't know the answer. I mean, I only see essentially two possibilities. They think that they'll be able to sell these stakes to other funds or people for a lot more money, or the exit strategy is you wait until the controlling owner sells, you get dragged along, and then you share in the appreciation there. That would make sense to me, is that if they think yeah. these clubs are going to appreciate, they don't necessarily have to sell their stake at the higher valuation. They just have to hold it until the the, the traditional owner, the, the, the controlling owner, sells it at that valuation, and they kind of get dragged along in the process. But you're right. It, it seems to me like the more money they make off these sales, the, these stakes and appreciation, the harder the landing is to keep your metaphor going, the harder, the, the bumpier the landing might be when they are ready to land the plane. Important to note that from what we understand and talking to the people who do these sorts of things, that we are not looking at the historical timeline for a private equity investment. Yeah. This isn't, we need X percent in five to seven years, get me the heck out, I'm on to something else. These are longer term hold in an industry that has traditionally seen exponential growth and franchise valuation and all the adjacent businesses. Now, I, I think a lot of this might, might also be sort of the entree to who the owners are and what else they're doing. This is one thing we're doing together. Maybe there are some other things we can do together with some other money that we've got tucked away in a different fund. It's not just going to be the sports asset. Just, I mean, we've seen it time and again. You're, this is about people, right? You're, you're not betting just on the team. You're betting on the management team and that they can do really great things with not only the team, but how many times have we talked about them? Hello, Sam Kennedy is platform companies. Maybe we're talking media. Maybe we're talking real estate. Maybe we're talking incubator. Uh, on a global basis, you know, the, the demand for, for live media um, just keeps exponentially growing. So it's not just about, hey, how many people are coming into uh, Fenway Park to watch the Red Sox today? It, it goes far beyond that. So we're recording this, Scott, on Wednesday afternoon. We are less than 24 hours from the kickoff of uh, the, the the main first round of, of the NCAA tournament. Are you excited about, about this tournament? I've heard from some people down here in Texas that it feels as though there's maybe less buzz, a little bit less excitement about March Madness than, than there has been in years past. Well, I, I'm not a great person to ask, as you know, because I, I mean, when I was younger, you know, younger than even you, I could name every player on so many teams and I used to stay up and watch the midnight game in the Big West Conference because, you know, I heard they had a good center or whatever. Now, man, pick your top teams. Who, all right, who are the four number one seats? I can't even answer that question. Who are the four number one seats? You know? <laughs> no, you're putting me on the spot. Uh, no, if you know, that, that, that proves our point. Like, <laughs> Gonzaga, I mean, who are the, Baylor, yeah, the other two, um, Kansas. I can't and, name, uh, I cannot sure name a single, I can't name a single player on Gonzaga, Baylor, nope, no idea. Can't name a single player. No idea. On the plus side, and I believe the one and done sort of started this. I know you have your brand names, the Dukes and everything. I got it. But the one and done sort of have been, or leaving after your sophomore year or whatever it is, has been great equalizer for sort of those middle-level um, conferences where they perhaps don't get the five-star recruit, but maybe the four, the three who wind up staying for three and four years, and they emerge as, obviously, they've been together for a longer time. They emerge as really good teams. I just don't know who they are. <laughs> so for me, I, straight up excitement, I don't know, but I'm, we're still interested always on how companies utilize these big events, uh, the broadcasting of it all. And one of those companies, if I may so, be so bold as to segue, because you wrote about it, 
is Nike and the Jordan brand. I mean, we're starting to see this, this drumbeat of growth out of the Jordan brand in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, this has been a priority of Nike's uh, for, for the last five years, essentially. Jordan brand, historically, everyone knows the Jumpman logo, uh, has been a, a basketball shoe and lifestyle apparel company. And Nike has realized over the past few years that, oh, th- there's a market for this to be in other, other parts of our business. So the way in which I think a lot of sports fans have seen that, if you're a fan of European soccer, Paris Saint-Germain wears the Jumpman on its, on its uniforms, for example. There's, there's a few other European teams that have, that have Jordan partnerships. If you're a college football fan, teams like Michigan and teams like UNC are wearing college football uniforms with, with the Jumpman logo. Yadier Molina, a catcher in Major League Baseball, has the Jordan logo on his, uh, on his catching pads. Uh, Nike has made a very concerted effort to make it very clear that in, in, in a lot of the ways that, that they have kind of traditionally separated Jordan from the Nike swoosh, they want the Jordan brand Jumpman logo to be in parts of those things. And college basketball, Scott, as, as you said, is kind of a perfect example. There were seven Jordan teams uh, in the tournament last year. There are six Jordan teams in the men's tournament this year. Uh, that was up from just one or two if you were to go back four or five years ago. So certainly the, the way in which Nike is kind of spreading the, uh, the, the, the Jumpman wings, you're going to see that on the court in the next few weeks if you watch the March Madness tournament. I'm always interested also in sort of the enduring brand, right? I mean, most of the younger kids, uh, did they watch The Last Dance? Speaking of John Weinbach hanging out with us at South By, he was one of the producers of The, of the Last Dance. But it sort of catapulted, not that Michael ever lost relevancy, that's not what I'm saying, but certainly it was a huge boost to the younger set. You know, obviously people of a certain age who watched Michael Jordan play consider many the all-time great and they, they know all about what, what his accomplishments but some of the younger set didn't. And there was like this new appreciation for Michael. But now you've got sort of LeBron would be the next active player, right? And the, and the Steph Curry's of the world. And yet the Jordan brand still is that elite premium platinum brand. And that Jumpman logo means a whole hell of a lot. And Nike doesn't care whether you buy the swoosh or the Jumpman, right? Like in in this new world where everything's going online and you don't bring money, you just walk around the store and you get hit with like beacon alerts of you're about to pass a sale item in your size, something like that. Do you think we ever see another Jordan brand kind of popping up out of one of these big companies? And and one of the reasons I'm asking is that Nike has a deal with Florida A&M. They're the only, I believe, the only Division One college basketball team that wears the LeBron James logo, the LJ. And if you watch Davidson play in the tournament this year, they're an Under Armour school, but they wear the Steph Curry SC logo um, because uh, you know he's a he's an Under Armour endorser. Uh, so there are other teams, including one in the tournament, that are wearing kind of these other sub brands that are based off, as you said, way bigger stars and kind of the the current, at least among young people, the current uh, cultural lexicon. Uh, and yet. Uh, Jordan brand seems to be it's growing bigger and bigger. I'm curious if we ever get certainly these these companies are going to build brands off of people like Dwayne the Rock Johnson or Steph Curry or LeBron James. I do wonder if we ever get them to kind of the size within one of these companies that Jordan has achieved. Yeah, t- tough to answer. First, you have to have sort of that sustained excellence, and at a time when what it, what did. It- TJ Adeshola of Twitter say on uh, one of our panels, like he fought against the notion. He fought back on the notion that the attention spans of the young set is shorter. 
He just said it's so fractionalized. Like they'll give you 10 seconds here, but they'll give you 10 seconds on the on the on the TikTok, 10 seconds on the Xbox, 10 seconds on the TV, 10 seconds on the other, that is the on the snap. That it, it's not that their attention span is shorter. And I'm not sure I agree with him, but he said it's just so cut up that it's I don't know if you're gonna possibly accumulate sort of the attention on one particular athlete if you're going to so many different platforms the way Michael used to be because he, with fewer options, was everywhere. So I, I just don't know if it's possible just in this sort of bifurcated world that we, uh, media world that we live in. I, I want to go back to one other thing that you said earlier about how you can't really name any major stars in, in men's college basketball. I totally agree with that. I watch a decent amount of college basketball. I do feel like there is kind of a dearth of stars I find it especially interesting that that you and I both feel that way in the year that college basketball players are able to market themselves in ways that they were never able to before. Uh, I think I probably would have thought that granting uh, name, image, and likeness rights to college basketball players should make them more recognizable, should make them more of uh, household names in America. Uh, and maybe this is just a, a one-year thing, kind of the ebb and flow of talent and teams and things like that. But it does seem interesting to me that, that there, all, there seems to be less star power in college basketball at a time where we're giving college basketball players way more rights to kind of create their own star power. Are you talking about men's college basketball or are you talking about women's college basketball or women's athlete in general? Because if the NIL table that I recently saw is accurate, <laughs> it would seem to me that the best compensated athletes since the NIL, you know, since NIL has been allowed are female athletes and not the male athletes running counter to the narrative that many pushed when they were fighting against the establishment of NIL rights in the first place. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. I would also argue that outside of Paige Bukers, I'm not sure if I can name a single women's, but like I, it seems like that also hasn't changed that much in terms of, of the national recognition of a lot of, of, of college athletes. And let's be, 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 we should mention at least that there, there's more options for, on the men's side. There's way more options now if you are an elite 17-year-old basketball player than there ever has been. And a lot of them are playing in Australia. Some of them are playing in the G League. A lot of them are going over to Europe. Uh, and, and and maybe that is is affecting things. I, I I'm skeptical that it is, but we should mention at least that that that, that maybe one of the reasons we're feeling this way is that um, there is a, relative to ten years ago uh, a slight dearth in in the talent that goes to college just because of all these other options. That's two dearths uses by you. You can't say dearth again. Yeah, that that was it. And by the way, just speaking uh, of athletes and opportunity, how cool was it? One of the dinners we had at South by Southwest, Southwest was with Matt Walsh, and. He's you know part owner of the New Zealand Breakers of the NBL, part owner of Club Nakaxa of Liga MX. He's into some tech companies as well. I, I find it fascinating to sort of find or follow the career arc of some of these. I'm like, oh, I remember Matt Walsh, you know, back in the day, um, and the things that they're doing now. He's sort of a, I don't know if he's at the forefront of of what athletes are trying to do now. Get to the ownership, you know that that's the epitome, right? is getting to that ownership level. No, it's not the NBA. I understand that. But it's certainly an interesting uh, portfolio that he's putting together in a training ground should he want to do something here in the U.S.
I find stories like Matt's way more interesting than all of the companies yeah. that Kevin Durant invests in and maybe gets a great exit from and makes a billion dollars. Um, the, the, the people who are investing and, and are really hands-on, I think he's CEO of the breakers. I, I find these stories to be way more interesting than, than just the ex athletes part of X million dollar series B financing round, um, which is happening a lot and, and is, is really great. Um, but yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of athletes who are maybe a tier below kind of the, the AA all-star super famous athletes, uh, and also have a little bit less money than the, the AA super all-star athletes, uh, but are doing maybe way more interesting things on the business side post-career. All right, we talk about great exits. How about great entrances? And Joe Buck and Troy Aikman have really lucrative entrances to ESPN, the new faces and voices of Monday Night Football. You know, hundred plus million dollars spent, and our own Anthony Krupe, I know, was working up a piece to say it doesn't move the needle. You know, the announcers don't move the needle. It's that age old. Like, does anybody watch for the announcers? Will fewer people tune in? I understand, again, you're talking platinum brand, white label Monday Night Football, white label ESPN and sports. You need, do you need white label announcers? Or what would be the long-term effect, if any? I'm sure the NFL wants a pristine product out there, but what would be the long-term effect of having Eminem and Scott do the broadcast? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I would even take it one step further. It, not only does it not move the needle, I think we're right on the precipice of it moving the needle less than it ever has in the history of sports being on television. The 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 idea that you are soon going to have all these fractional broadcasts, you can watch the Manning brothers do this, you can watch the traditional announcers do that, you can watch celebrities talk about it, you can watch Homer announcers talk about it, but average attend, uh, audience for a Monday night football game is about 13 million. Scott, that number could go up in the future. I think we are right on the verge of never having 13 million people watching the same Monday night football broadcast ever again. And in that world where all of that 13 million is broken up among, say, at three, four, 12, 20 different broadcasting options, I would argue that the, the main cast that has Joe Buck and Aikman becomes way less important. And, and it's, it's fascinating to me that at this time, when it feels like specific announcers are going to be drawing in way less eyeballs than, than they ever have, we're also paying them so much more money. No dearth of tepid takes from Evan Novi Williams today, <laughs> if, if I may. Can you do a poll for me, by the way? Sure. But it has, it has to be a poll of listeners. This is like okay. post-listen. Did okay. Evan sound tired? Sound tired to me, my man. But did Eben, does the listener know that this is an Eben on day? What are you, day five or six on the road? What are you? I, I can, six, I think. I can answer, does Eben feel tired? There, I know one, how it, There's yeah. one well, person that needs you, to answer that one, and I have the, uh, <laughs> I have the answer Well, here. that's because rather than go to the restaurant that's right downtown and easy where we are, Eben comes up with the, hey, no, no, there's a really good taco truck, 20-minute walk away. Let's go there. Always. They were good. They were good, Always. but the, I'm, gonna, I'm, so, I'm not going to give out names of trucks and all this, Evan. Those were good tacos, but they were nowhere near as good as the shrimp taco I had at the joint right next to where we had our event. Man, there's so many Just good. Saying. I'm going to turn into a taco if I stay here any longer. <laughs> <laughs> there you have it. He is Evan Novi Williams on the Twitter, Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Soshnick on Twitter at Soshnick. Our producer is Matt Whitehurst. Thank you very much, Matt. Our social media editor is Cora Veltman. She loves it when I remind you that the show is at Sportacast, which is the hub of what will soon become the Sportico Media Network. <laughs>